episode two. I can't believe we're already on episode two. I know. <laughs> Considering we just recorded the first episode last night. <laughs> but I'm super stoked about this topic. Now we get to get into the real stuff. And today we're going to be talking about psychosis. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> the lighthearted ta- uh, coffee table book <laughs> topic of psychosis. Yes. Um, it's just so, I guess, widespread and I feel like very misunderstood. People don't really understand what psychosis is outside of like, obviously, I would hope if you're a psychiatrist, you understand psychosis, but just based on like the consults we get. And I wanted to make the focus of the episode psychosis and not like a DSM diagnosis like schizophrenia because psychosis is more like it's a thing that is definable. Whereas like when you get into these DSM diagnoses like schizophrenia, you're not really talking about what that really looks like when you break it down. Right. However, as a I'm not not a lay person, but as somebody not trained in psychiatry, when I think of psychosis, as I'm sure many people do, they think of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know a lot of my questions are going to be based on schizophrenia. So, um, you know, feel free to correct me. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think, too, you know, obviously, if someone has schizophrenia, they have psychosis. But the basis of all these things is psychosis, which is why I wanted to touch on that topic. And I felt the best way to approach this and begin this episode is sort of to talk about, like, if I get a consult in the emergency department, and it could be, the consult could say, it could say auditory hallucinations, it could say bizarre behavior, it could say schizophrenia, like, what am I looking for when I look for psychosis and what makes me think someone needs like urgent treatment for that. So essentially when I do get these consults, it will be often, you know, might say psychosis, it might say whatever. Um, You know, usually when you go to consult in the emergency department, the patient has been to the hospital in the past and you can sort of review their records and get an idea of like based on prior notes, is this person truly psychotic or do they have a history that makes me think that maybe they have more of a substance use disorder or something else. So that's the way I would begin if I do get a consult, I would chart review. But sometimes you get like it's a maybe a younger person or for whatever reason they have literally no history. So you're going in blind. Or they're visiting from out of state mm-hmm. um, or they have used a different alias. Yes. Uh, and you had a fresh one, a fresh start. Yes. <laughs> because if someone truly is disorganized, they could definitely um, maybe not be giving the correct name or there are a multitude of other reasons mm-hmm. that you would not be looking at the right chart for them. So... When I see, let's say I'm going into a patient's room, well, if things are pretty intense, there might be a chance that before you even get in the room, a patient is visibly agitated or screaming or who knows what's going on. But sometimes the situation and your assessment is beginning before you even enter the room because of what's going on there. Um, But when let's say the person isn't visibly agitated or yelling at anything, you know, 
when you go in and you see a patient in an emergency department, generally, you know, you introduce yourself, you say, hey, I'm Dr. So-and-so, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, were you aware that I was coming to see you? And sometimes even that can give you like a little bit of an idea of like how together this patient is, or maybe they'll get upset mm -hmm. that a psychiatrist is coming to see them. And then after that, the real general question you can ask is just like, what brought you in? And this is a standard question you're essentially going to use for every patient. It's not really limited. It's not always limited to psychiatrists. <laughs> yeah. And my favorite answer to what brought you in is the ambulance. <laughs> yes. And that's a very concrete thinking right there. <laughs> Tells you a lot just from that answer. Yes. And like, so if a patient gives an answer about, um, you know, something medical or some other complaint or like right off the bat, sometimes it gives you a little bit of an idea of what's going on with them. If they're like, I'm here because I'm hearing voices, to be honest, if someone says that, I'm even though like that's one of the criteria for psychosis, it's not really going to convince me that they're psychotic because they just told me that they're here because they're hearing voices. Psychosis is more, when someone is psychotic, there's not a lot of insight into their state, um, unless perhaps they have like chronic schizophrenia and they're aware of like what's going on and they can say like the voices are bothering me or something like that. But most people, you know, because of this lack of insight, there's they're not aware that anything is wrong, and they're not going to tell you that they're hearing voices. And even if you ask outright, they might not state that. So, but if someone truly is hearing voices, they will often be like looking around the room, potentially in the middle of your conversation with them, talking to turning to someone else that isn't there and saying something to them. There are indicators that maybe this person's reality is not the reality you're in. Wow. And, you know, so that's a lot of what you can look for. Um, and then based on, like, you know, you still ask, like, you go through your mental status exam, you ask them questions and stuff. And if someone, another thing with psychosis, if someone is psychotic, lots of times the things they say don't make sense. And it's hard to give an example because it's, it's not like, t it's just, it's just bizarre. It's off. It's not really sensical. Right. It kind of takes you back. Like, did I hear that right? Am, yes. am I okay? Or did, did they actually say that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so it can, you know, so it's, as you see more and more patients, you know, what's psychosis and then what's perhaps, you know, like, for example, someone could say, I'm hearing voices, but they don't appear psychotic. They're not looking around the room. They're engaging in conversation with you. That's more like auditory phenomenon and not exactly auditory hallucinations. So they are hearing things, but it's not the type of auditory hallucination that goes along with a psychotic person hmm. where they're truly hearing things that aren't there and aren't able to distinguish that that's not real. Right. And when someone is truly psychotic, they often, some of them will be agreeable. Like, let's say you tell a patient, like, you know, I, I think you need to come into the hospital for treatment. Some of them will still be of a, like, sound enough mind that they'll at least agree to that. Mm -hmm. And 
they understand that maybe even if they don't understand that they're psychotic, they understand that there's something distressing to them that they would like to get medication for. And then some people, you can tell they're so disconnected from reality that there's no way that they can consent to coming into the hospital. And so every state has a different process for when you think someone doesn't have the capacity to consent to their own psychiatric care, where you go about essentially committing them to the hospital. Um, And that's, you know, it's very different in each state. There's different rules, but um, it's necessary to get people the treatment that they need. Right. It's for, you know, it's for their own good. Um, Also, I'm sure, you know, you'll get into kind of if they are a harm to themselves or others Mm -hmm. in this condition, Mm -hmm. um, you have kind of more of a grounds to to get them in. Yeah, so with psychosis, generally, I mean, sometimes they'll be suicidal too. Sometimes they would want to harm other people. But the vast majority of the time, they're not going to be presenting with something that's straightforward. But it's more like you worry about their capacity to care for themselves. Because if they're disconnected from reality, they can't really take care of themselves. So that's something to keep in mind. And then so, you know, you... There are still the people who are going to say maybe they're hearing things or they're seeing things, but there, when we step aside from psychosis, there are other things that can cause like perhaps auditory phenomenon, and that could be like mood disorders, PTSD, multiple things. And then on top of it, unfortunately, a reality you have to face is that there are many people who come into the emergency department, perhaps they were in a shelter and they got kicked out for using drugs and now they don't have anywhere to stay. So they would benefit from having, you know, a bed to go to and they can't really fake a medical illness, but they could potentially try to fake a psychiatric illness um, to get admitted to the hospital. And that's sort of what you have to be good at differentiating too. And then beyond that, there's other situations that arise in the emergency department. Like let's say you did go to see a patient and they were so agitated you couldn't even go in the room. Um, One of the common ways we handle that in not only the emergency department, also in like when patients are on a psychiatric unit is we call it chemical restraint Mm -hmm. is one term for it. And it's sort of like you're giving someone a medication that is calming them down so that they don't hurt themselves or others. Um, And the most common combination that is used for that is a B52, and that stands for 50 milligrams of Benadryl, 5 milligrams of Haldol, and 2 milligrams of Ativan. And Haldol is an antipsychotic that works on any psychosis that is contributing. Benadryl, obviously, can sedate, but it also protects from some of the side effects of Haldol, so it's good to give with it. And then Ativan is a benzodiazepine, so it also calms down agitation. Yeah. Um, and do you still use physical restraints in the hospital? So they have, they are still used, but only when someone has failed multiple rounds of chemical restraints and it becomes unsafe mm. to give any more medication than you do physical restraints. But studies show that physical restraints. Um, can be dangerous, there can be bad outcomes. So it's 
definitely we try to avoid it these days. I would say back in the day, it was probably a lot more common to physically restrain patients, but the whole purpose of a chemical restraint is that it shouldn't be unpleasant. You should actually like feel better when mm. you get like howled all out of and things like that. You know, you should feel peaceful and able to sleep a little more. Whereas like clearly physical restraints, there is a component of it being traumatic. Like there's no sure. way around it. Sure. Um do you have any, going back to the patients that uh, present because of, um, we'll call it secondary gain, they may tell you that they have this symptom and that symptom that sounds like psychosis, but again, like you said, they their living situation is such that they, you know, decide the hospital is, you know, the, the place for them. How do you uh, distinguish between somebody who truly is psychotic and somebody who uh, the word we use is malingering um, because you know I'm sure there are you know not tricks but I'm sure that there are little giveaways that may be helpful yeah so it goes back to some of the things I said part of it is like if you have if the patient has been in your hospital before you can sort of figure out from their records if it's like let's say someone got admitted for having some of these complaints but then when they were on the unit no one ever witnessed them being psychotic it was sort of clear they were there for this secondary gain so that's one thing um let's say the person has no record and they're telling you like i'm hearing voices well you'd you still want to so let's say someone says they're hearing voices but they deny that they're suicidal they deny that they want to harm anyone else and they don't seem psychotic you can probably still come up with a plan for outpatient care sometimes people will then escalate because they see they're not they're getting what they want and they'll be like i'm gonna kill myself if you discharge me Mm. and it becomes tricky because And it depends on your comfort level and every case is different. But sometimes if it's very, very clear that this is a manipulative tactic, you will still end up discharging the patient anyways. And then sometimes if you're like, okay, well, I think this person is probably being dishonest and trying to, you know, gain an admission, but they've never been here before. We don't really know too much about them, um, you know, potentially some of this stuff could be true, then you might admit them that time and just sort of give them the benefit of the doubt the first time. Right. And, you know, there is something to be said, you know, even if, you know, the hospital is there for a reason to help people. And even if they don't have the, uh, you know, the diagnosis of psychosis, they are still there for help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the beauty of it is that every patient who gets admitted is, you know, reviewed by social work and case management. So they can still benefit yes. um, by either placement or resources. Mm-hmm. So there is something, I think, to be said yeah. for, for that too. And some of what you can do is just because you're discharging a patient from the emergency department doesn't mean that you're not helping them. Right. You often do provide them with outpatient psychiatric resources you often do have a social worker come speak to them about shelters they could stay at and provide them with different resources you know uh, transportation to somewhere they need to get to um giving them food yeah just a sandwich or whatever and 
beyond that, um, there's just ways also just to help them. And it doesn't necessarily need to be an admission, like resources beyond the things I've discussed that you could refer a patient to. Right. So my, you know, my next question for you is, um, what is kind of, can you go over some delusions and types of hallucinations and kind of speak on what, you know, you find the most interesting or complex or Mm -hmm. easy or hardest to treat and things like that? Yeah. So hallucinations in psychosis, um, it's very complex and it's hard to like label hallucinations, but generally with psychosis, one thing I do probably should touch on is that you generally just have auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations. Um, they can be from like alcohol withdrawal or Mm. something to do with substances, but it's not usually something with psychosis, but the hearing voices, Um, and the person not really being aware of that, but you seeing that. And then there is a bit of a blurred line between psychosis and delusions. So sometimes someone reports something and it could potentially be true, but there's a lot of evidence that it's not true. So I see. So it's kind of like there's a truth in every lie. Yes. It's based on a reality, but it's not reality. Yeah. So delusions can they can often be like sort of paranoid. Someone will believe like the FBI is coming after them. They're mm. monitoring their all of their technology. Things that's very very common. Um, and so often, if someone's more um, delusional than psychotic. Everything else will make sense except for where this delusional content permeates their thoughts and their stories that they share. I do think the most interesting type of delusion is romantic delusion. And that's where someone is like convinced that them and it could be like a stranger, but it could be someone actually in their life that them and this person are totally in love. But And it obviously could be true because anyone could be in love. But usually what happens is they do very, like, aggressive stalking or something to that person. And then the the person that is the, you know, that they're supposedly in love with ends up having to go to the police even because things have escalated to that point. And that's how you end up – this person could end up in, like, a psychiatric unit because of their delusion because it's – got in such control of them that they're now stalking someone and police are involved. So what about the other, what about the object of this person's affection? Mm -hmm. What about their actions is the delusional person not interpreting or are they, are there, oh, they, this is what we do. They, they call the police and you know, it's our joke. It's our game. Is there anything uh, how do they respond to the uh, person kind of pushing them away? 
So, you know, it can vary very much because this is just a normal person who, well, not that anyone's normal, but (laughs) a somewhat normal person, I hope, that became the object of this person's sort of obsession. And sometimes this person has literally never contacted the person that has the delusion. Other times it is someone that would like, they were potentially in a romantic relationship at some point. So it can vary. So getting into antipsychotics, I'm going to start by talking about typical antipsychotics, but I don't like calling them that. I prefer calling them first generation antipsychotics because they are not widely utilized nowadays, so it makes no sense to call them typical antipsychotics. But they were the first antipsychotics we had. And the reason they've sort of fallen out of favor is because of their side effect profile, which we will talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. But the two biggest names that people are going to recognize in this category is Haldol, which is still widely used because it's so sedating. When people are acutely agitated, it's a good go-to drug because of, of how quickly it sort of takes effect and sedates and stuff like that. And then the other one, this is not widely used but still used sometimes, is Thorazine. And that's another sort of medication that is more used for like someone is perhaps on other antipsychotics and it's not really controlling stuff. So let's add Thorazine because it's really good for agitation. Mm. Um, But these are heavy hitters, old medications. And we actually use Thorazine for hiccups, for intractable hiccups and certain types of strokes. Um, So some of these medications are so old that they are tried and true and used for other things that it was either discovered incidentally or there's science behind it. But yeah, we do use that one. So the big side effect that, well, it can really happen with any antipsychotic, but specifically these, um, it's like a whole group of things that we refer to as EPS or extrapyramidal symptoms. And so there are several different, I guess, things that are under the umbrella of EPS. And I decided that a good way to talk about this would be to sort of chronological, like what would happen right after Mm. an antipsychotic versus what would happen after taking antipsychotics for a few weeks versus what could potentially happen after a few months. And none of this has to happen. It's just things that could happen. So Immediately, let's say you give someone some Haldol and potentially they're not used to taking Haldol. One of the things that could happen, which is under this EPS umbrella, is akathisia, which is just sort of like restlessness, like feeling a little, you know, sort of like the person bouncing their leg up and down or feeling like they can't stay still. And um, so that's like clearly not too concerning by any means. Just a little bit of restlessness could be annoying. And then the one thing that can happen that's a little more can be very scary to see is something called acute dystonia. And that's someone having like involuntary movements generally of like their neck or their tongue. And it could sort of be like muscle spasms. But both the acute dystonia and the akathisia should respond to medications like Benadryl or cogentin, which is why when you give someone like a good dose of Haldol um, as like an as needed, potentially for agitation or something like that, 
often you just give it with the Benadryl or the cogentin right off the bat so that the person doesn't have these unpleasant side effects. I see. Um, okay, so um, why did um, some of the atypicals, why did they fall out of favor? Some more of these EPS symptoms. So like, for example, even with giving the Benadryl or cogentin, like, yes, it can get rid of the akathisia or acute dystonia, but they are anticholinergic and you don't want to give like too much and you don't want to give them long term. It could potentially worsen memory. And I don't know if you want to touch on what anticholinergic means. I do. Um, and I, you know, this, you know, this next few seconds of what I'm going to say, um, if you are studying medicine or pharmacology or really anything kind of, I'll give you my little way to remember this. So, you know, just because we take a medication that is supposed to affect our behavior or mood um, or something to do with our, our brain and our thinking doesn't mean that the medication, the drug goes right to the brain and only works where we want it to. In fact, the receptors that we have in the brain are all over the body. So as you can imagine, you know, this causes problem and you you have to constantly weigh the risks of the effects from other parts of your body to the benefit of the treatment that you're receiving. So um, cholinergic describes a type of um, kind of receptor mechanism and the the type of receptor is called uh, muscarinic uh, receptors and they're all over the body as well as the brain. Um, and they're called cholinergic because they use the neurotransmitter or the chemical messenger, um, acetylcholine. Um, so that basically the neurotransmitter goes in between, you know, one air, one receptor to another. And the way when I'm going to go into the the side effects, the way that I remember is cholinergic C. Um, is for wet symptoms and anti-C causes dry symptoms. And just stay with me. I promise (laughs) you I'm going somewhere. Um, Muscarinic M upside down is W, so wet. So cholinergic means wet things. Anticholinergic means dry things, anti-wet. And this is why the side effects of anticholinergic cause drying out of the body, dry mouth, which can lead to cavities, Mm -hmm. constipation, which can lead to bowel obstruction, urinary retention, which can lead to UTIs, and decreased sweating, which can lead to hyperthermia. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking of side effects of anticholinergic medications, think of dry things, like a dry diaper, a dry person. Um, So, you know, that's my best way to explain these. And unfortunately, they're worse in... um, you know, elderly patients who already have some degree of impairment in, in these in these areas. So unfortunately, you know, you really have to weigh the risks with the benefit of, of treating them. Uh, clozapine was is the, you know, biggest offender in the anticholinergic yeah. game. And uh, risperidone is actually the is thought to be one of the, you know, less likely to cause these uh, these side effects. Mm. Um also, which I kind of couldn't 
put into a funny, you know, rhyme or way to think of it was you can also get dilated pupils, which can lead to blurry vision, uh, increased heart rate, which, you know, is, is very hard to discern if it's from, you know, the heart or because of this medication, um, and confusion and delirium, which doesn't help anybody who's already, yeah. you know, in this situation. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that was helpful. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I think the idea is that, you know, Benadryl or cogentin, like, great when needed, but you don't want someone on a medication that's going to require them to also be on these medications, like, twice a day forever. Right. So it's better to find a solution that requires just one medication instead of multiple. So some of the other things that can happen with EPS is let's say someone's been on an antipsychotic for a few weeks, they could develop Parkinsonianism. And what that looks like is they'll have slowed movements, their limbs will be rigid, and they can have a pill rolling tremor, which essentially means it's like they have a bottle of pills in their hand and it can't stop shaking them. And that's how to visualize that. Or the pill is between their first two uh, two fingers. Oh, that's two. even better. <laughs> I've seen both. I've seen the, yeah, I've seen both. Yeah. I think it's like a, an inhaler shaking yeah. type thing, but also it's very slight. And it they'll, it, if they put the, if you're in a hospital bed, or the patient rather is in a hospital <laughs> bed, and the blanket is between their fingers, it kind of just looks like they're picking at the blanket. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good way to visualize this. So then the last thing that can happen with any antipsychotic, but once again, more likely to happen with these first-generation medications that have the higher risk of the EPS is tardive dyskinesia. And if you're in medicine, I'm sure you've heard of tardive dyskinesia because it's like one of those things that has such a scary reputation Mm -hmm. that people know what it is. So tardive dyskinesia, it would be be incredibly rare for it to develop before someone had been on an antipsychotic for like six months but realistically it's usually develops in people who've been on it for like 20 years or something like that and one of these like first generation medications or like that are more likely to cause it I think it's a little more prevalent in women and you think of older women having it But visually, it presents very similarly to acute dystonia. It's involuntary movements in the face generally, like of the tongue or the neck or some, and it could be, or it could be a limb. It could Mm. be anything really. But the difference is this, this isn't acute. It, it comes on after the person has been on these medications for so long. Right. And let me give everybody listening a good way to remember it. Now you, you're all hearing all of my study secrets now. <laughs> Tardive means delayed. Like if you're tardy, you're late. So it's a late manifestation. Yes. So tardy, tardive. Yes, that's good. I like it. Mm-hmm. And another thing to think about is if you gave this person cogent or Benadryl, it would not improve. When someone does get tardive dyskinesia, I mean, in today's day and age, I can't imagine that you wouldn't pull them off the antipsychotic and uh, potentially you would end up trying a different one with a lesser risk obviously you know things are complex and we can't make broad statements but the first thing is generally to remove the medication unfortunately tardive dyskinesia is often a chronic lifelong thing and doesn't go away with the removal of the medication and that's why it's something that usually patients are made aware of before Mm. If, if they have the capacity to understand 
and they're consenting to being on antipsychotics, you would go over these risks and they could like keep a lookout for them. Do the mouth movements or the, the, the lip smacking or the tongue protrusion, do they bother the person that ha- that suffers from them? I think they do. Unfor- I think they have to like at some point adjust to it, but I would imagine that at least in the beginning, it's very bothersome and then eventually they have to cope with it. But from the patients that I've met that have tardivus kinesia, it's sort of like this is how they are now and they've accepted it. But I wouldn't say that this isn't bothersome to them. Okay. So one other thing that we think about with all antipsychotics, once again, but also once again, higher risk with first gens is something what we refer to as NMS or neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So this most commonly happens in young males shortly after initiating treatment with a first-generation antipsychotic is the most common situation it's going to occur. And the symptoms of NMS are fever, high heart rate, high blood pressure. They can have a tremor. There's a lab that you can get on patients called a CPK, which sort of um, it's looking at like your muscle rigidity, and that would be elevated in them. And obviously, because that's elevated, what we'll be making it elevated is the fact that they're having rigidity. And then they could have excessive sweating. They could even be delirious. Mm. And delirium is just sort of not being aware of where you are and what's going on around you. But luckily with this, you can just remove the medication. You give them supportive care for the symptoms and it should resolve. Worst case, they would, you know, have to go to the ICU because Mm. they're really unstable, but it should resolve and they should go back to normal. Right. Um, I've seen it once or twice. Yeah. Um, And... Yeah, it's it's very dramatic. Yeah, it's, it's very dramatic, but um, it does it does get better. Yeah, and there are some things that are like it can present very similarly to serotonin syndrome, but yes. generally, the person is not on both an SSRI, like an antidepressant, and an antipsychotic. Usually, you can differentiate because of the medication that someone on. But once again, even if it was serotonin syndrome, it's going to be like removal of medication, supportive care. So, um, I think. When people look in like uh, board textbooks, they mention certain medications that used to treat this, but the reality is that we don't usually use those medications and we just give the patient supportive care. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's say that the medications, um, you know, they're on the maximum dose, they've been having some side effects, there's really no, you know, w- what are kind of the next steps in terms of what other options are available to patients suffering psychosis? Yeah. So nowadays, generally, we we wouldn't even start with these medications that are likely to cause these side effects. So I will now talk about atypical antipsychotics, or as I prefer to talk about them, second-generation antipsychotics. So as a class of medications, and these came out more recently, like I would say hmm, probably, and don't quote me on this because I didn't look it up, but I would say probably more widely utilized the past like since maybe the 90s, I would guess. Um, I think too, because you have to think about when medications come out, they're generally very expensive. So it takes 20 years for something to become generic and Mm -hmm. be widely accessible. So 
these medications do still have side effects. They do still have risk of EPS. They do still have risk of NMS, but it is significantly lower than with the first generation antipsychotics. However, there are certain side effects that these have that the first generation antipsychotics don't really have to the extent that they do. And the big thing is you worry about a patient developing metabolic syndrome. And what that looks like is with almost all of these medication, the patient is going to gain weight. Like I would say, it's like probably considered good if it's limited to like 20 pounds, unfortunately. And as a result of that weight gain, they will often develop high cholesterol and they can even develop diabetes. Mm -hmm. So you need to be monitoring their labs Obviously, some of the medications are more likely to cause metabolic syndrome than others. And if someone is responding pretty badly to one, you could try one of the ones that is less likely to cause this. And also, that's why you really don't want to put patients on these medications unless you really need to. Like they, That's why you don't want to put them on unless they're truly psychotic, not just because they're self-reporting symptoms, because there is a risk with these medications. Sure. Um <clears throat> Okay. So can you name a couple of the atypicals just for everyone? Yes. So right before I get into that, I want to mention one other thing that you have to worry about with all the antipsychotics, and that's QTC prolongation. And that's something that like an EKG will tell you when you get an EKG. The number usually that you don't And I think it might vary from hospital to hospital and attending to attending. But generally, from what I've been taught, you don't want the number to be over 500. And I'm not a cardiologist, so I can't really go too much in depth about like a lot of the concerns with QTC prolongation. But I would assume there could be cardiac abnormalities as a result and risk factors for other things. Right. And um so for those of you who, who don't know what QTC prolongation is, it's um, kind of just, a, you know, the heartbeat is, you know, longer than it should be. And it's mm-hmm. not something you can detect by feeling or listening to someone's heart. You actually have to measure the conduction of the, um, the heartbeat. So, um, and, you know, a lot of times if the patients are in the hospital for other reasons and they're on other medications, that really all plays into um you know, what our options are. Yeah. So now I'm going to get into naming those second generation antipsychotics. And I'm going to start with probably the most widely utilized and that's Risperdal or (laughs) you can pronounce it several different ways. So Risperdal is like the, um, scientific name actually. And I think it's Risperdone is the, uh, like generic name, but I might be flipping that. Risperidone. Yeah. Yeah. And people pronounce it differently, but I always say Risperdal. <laughs> I don't talk about the other name for it. So the specific concern with this one is it can increase someone's prolactin hormone. Mm. And the main thing that someone would exhibit if their pro- prolactin is elevated is that you know, they could have engorged breasts and even start producing breast milk. Um, men too? Yes, men mm-hmm. too. And obviously for women, this is generally wouldn't be as distressing as it would be for a male. Um, for Obviously, for a male, it would probably be more gynecomastia, but they could still 
I mean, it's a hormone, so it can cause the same things in both of them. Um, and gynecomastia is? Gynecomastia is where it's generally a term we use for men when they have some like breast tissue development, mm-hmm. more fat in that area than they should. So it's not like, sup- I wouldn't say it's super common. Like I don't see many patients. I have seen the prolactin elevation. Um, personally, I don't think uh, it's, I've commonly known patients that have had to go off of it because of this, but it's just something to keep in mind. And, and there are certain patients, of course, that this might be the case with, but Risperdal is generally like, I feel like it's the go-to antipsychotic, at least in my mind and with psychiatrists. Um, what is a psychiatrist favorite antipsychotic can be different than, other specialties. I thought that was going to be a joke. Like, what do you call a psychiatrist's favorite antipsychotic? I thought that was like going to be a witty punchline. Well, <laughs> what I think is most people who are not psychiatrists' favorite antipsychotic is up next, and that's quetiapine or Seroquel. Mm-hmm. And uh, quetiapine is the scientific name, and Seroquel is the brand name here in America. So. With this one, some of the things that you do have to be concerned about is it's sedating, but that can be a good thing. That's you know, we use it. Sometimes. We use it a lot, <laughs> and sometimes it is prescribed, sort of off-label for sleep or anxiety. And I don't think many psychiatrists do that. Some do, but I'd mm. say it's more likely to be physicians that aren't trained in psychiatry, because once again, psychiatrists are always thinking about the risk with all these medications, so they're a little generally a little more conservative about prescribing any of this off-label. And there's plenty of other options for mm-hmm. anxiety. Yes, a lot of, of course. safer and less complicated. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that you can worry about with this medication is orthostatic hypotension, which is essentially the way this is going to present is a patient is waking up in the morning and if they get out of bed too quickly or waking up in the middle of the night and they blood pressure drops and they feel lightheaded and could pass out. Mm-hmm. And that's something you especially worry about with like geriatric patients sure. or elderly patients. So that's Seroquel. So the next one is olanzapine, which is also known as Cyprexa. This one, the big side effect is weight gain. It really causes a lot of weight gain. So that is one of a very large negative, of course, for patients. Um, but still a medication that is widely utilized. And then the next one is Ciprazidone, which is also known as Geodon. And the downside to this medication is that to be absorbed properly, it must be taken with a 300-calorie meal. And obviously that can be difficult for a patient who's psychotic to Mm. be on top of things enough to be taking their medication with a meal. Right. So that's the downside for it, unfortunately. Um, then another one is aripiprazole, which is also known as Abilify, more, mm. more widely known as that because it's the brand name. So Abilify uh, is definitely one of our more popular antipsychotics. It's often used as a mood stabilizer too. So patients who have a mood component to their psychosis, whether it's mania or depression, this can be a good option for them. Sometimes it's thought of as more of like a gentler antipsychotic. Mm. So it can be favorable due to that. The one 
side effect that it has is a little bit stimulating, but this can be good. Let's say someone is a little bit depressed or suicidal. You dose their Abilify in the morning morning. and now they're able to be more peppy and get through their day. Mm -hmm. So that is essentially what I have to say about second generation antipsychotics. Okay. And moving up the chain, then what's next? Okay, so let's say you have placed your patient on an antipsychotic and they get better while they're in the hospital. You discharge them and they stop taking their medication and they decompensate and they come back to the hospital and they're psychotic again. Maybe they were found wandering the streets, not acting like themselves At that point, you consider a long-acting injectable. And this is because for some patients, you know, even though they might get better with medication in the hospital, they have a lack of insight into their illness, and so they don't really think they need medication, and they don't understand that they're better on medication. So you want to pick an option that requires less compliance on their part. So the most popular long-acting injectable is in vagus astena. It's similar to Risperdal. So if you're considering this long-acting injectable, you would want to give a patient either a dose of oral in vega, which is not available everywhere. So if you're at a hospital that doesn't have that, you could give them a dose or two of Risperdal, see that they tolerate it, and then just put them straight on then vagus astena. And it has it's pretty widely covered by insurances or, you know, whatever else your patient is using for coverage, which can be an issue with some of the other long-acting injectables. And honestly, I don't like, I don't personally, I don't really like any of the other long-acting injectables, so I'm just going to skip talking about them. (laughs) And Vegas Ascent is pretty great because once the patient's on it, you can, they just have to get it once a month. So even if they are not even at the point where they're stable enough to bring themselves in or have someone else bring them in. There are often teams in the community where patients have social workers and physicians working together that will literally find them out in the community and give them their injection. They will come to them. These are called ACT teams generally. Oh, I like that. Yes. Um, They're kind of like the psychiatric um, version of like, you know, vigilantes. Yes. Yes. I like that. Um, and I, I have to mention, you know, it sounds on our end so easy to prescribe someone medication. You know, here's the script. I'm sending it to your pharmacy. All you have to do is pick it up. But it's not, it's really not that simple. If anyone's ever, you know, been on the receiving end of this, you have to go to the pharmacy, wait in line. And that's just for your 30 days. After 30 days, you have to you know, call in, make sure the prescription's there. There's a lot of, you know, legwork in, yeah. in, in maintaining somebody on a medication. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really is for somebody who didn't have any, you know, incapabilities, it would be difficult. So, you know, it it's definitely something to consider when you're choosing which patients to put on what form. Yeah. And so if you do decide to go this route and you want to put the patient on a vagus, a stena, if they've never been on it before... You do like a high loading dose the first day, and then a week later, you would give a little bit of a lower dose. So you actually end up keeping them in the hospital for like a week, unless there's, there's 
always exceptions where maybe someone has a really supportive family member mm-hmm. who is going to be able to take them to get that second dose in a week. Gotcha. So there's always variance. But then eventually they get on like a lower dose that they get month to month. And an injectable probably sounds scary. So I would think that if I didn't have my training, I might think that, you know, this would have a higher risk of side effects, but actually has a lower risk of side effects because there is a more um, stable level in the Mm -hmm. blood and you don't have like the peaks that you have when you take the oral medication. So they do have lower risk of all the side effects than, than with the oral medications. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So then what's next? What are other options? So let's say you have even tried long-acting injectable, the patient, or like you've tried just multiple antipsychotics and the patient is in the hospital and they haven't been able to get better, they're still psychotic, there is one more medication and it's the only antipsychotic proven to be superior to all the others. And that's known as clozapine or clozarill. It was actually discovered in the 1960s. It was the initial second-generation antipsychotic discovered. But it has a side effect profile that causes it to not be utilized until people have really shown that there's nothing else that's really going to be able to help them. So one thing about clozarill is it has a bit of a different mechanism of action than the other antipsychotics. It... um, it works on the D4 receptors. So those are a type of dopamine receptors. And we believe that's what makes it superior to the other antipsychotics. They, the other antipsychotics also work on dopamine receptors, but not D4 specifically. But we still don't know totally why it's better. A lot of these things are just theoretical. So going back to side effects, the one side effect you really worry about is something called a granulocytosis, which essentially means you lose certain cells in your body that protect you from infection. You can become more susceptible to get, um, you know, infections that can even turn into sepsis, which is like a life-threatening infection in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So this... It's not actually that common with Clozarill. There's really only a 1% chance that this would happen. And it wouldn't immediately be deathly because those numbers of your you know, cells that are protecting you would go down slowly, probably not dramatically. So currently, a lot of psychiatrists believe that the risk of Clozarill is overstated hmm. and that we're underutilizing it. Um, but because of early on when it was used, this wasn't really known and I'm sure a number of people died as a result. Now, because of that, if you are placed on this medication, you do have to have pretty intensive lab work. So you got to get weekly checks, like looking at your labs to make sure that these numbers aren't going down for six months. And then I think the second six months, it's bi-weekly. And then I think after that, it could go to monthly. Mm. But don't quote me on that. But I'm confident about the first six months is definitely every week. That's a lot. That's a big ask. Yes. Especially if there's transportation issues. Yes. So the problem is that usually when patients 
are being considered for Clozaril, they're really sick, right? So they're not the type of patient that when you discharge them is going to be able to come in weekly for labs. But the idea is that this patient could get better on the medication. If they get better on the medication, then maybe they will have the wherewithal to bring themselves to their weekly appointment or be in a place where their ACT team can find them and do what they need to do, you know? I love the <laughs> ACT team. I can't. I'm just picturing this. Just, I love it. I yes. love that that's a thing. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I don't, it's not everywhere. It's generally, unfortunately, only going to be in like larger cities mm-hmm. in America or at least like medium sized cities. And, um, you know, but that's the unfortunate case with mental health care. As you get to more rural areas, there's mm. less access. I think there's even states in America that might have one psychiatrist in the whole state. And oh, my the, goodness. I know. I know. So that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> but going back to Clozaril, the more common side effect is increased seizure risk. There's a 4% risk of seizures with it. So, you know, you'd want to pick a patient that doesn't have any history of seizures. If they did have a history of seizures, you know, that you'd have to really, really think about whether this is the right choice and have their seizures been controlled for a long time and things like that. So, you know, and then a common, like just really annoying side effects with Clozaril is they can get hyper salivation, which just means like... When they're sleeping at night, they'll wake up and there will be drool all over their pillow. But luckily, that's not difficult to treat. You just, there's some anticholinergic things that you can give to dry them out. Why? Why is that? The- you know, I I can't answer offhand. I don't know. I just know that I've seen patients that have had this. And then our lovely pharmacist has told me what to put in to <laughs> order for them to get rid of this. Um but maybe that's something I should look into. <laughs> yeah, because it just goes against everything that I had just said about. I know, I know, I did, I did, I did pick up on that when you said it, and then I was like, maybe I misheard you because this is very confusing. But um, yeah, it's usually <laughs> it's usually known to make people salivate. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that's Clozarel. Obviously, we'll, we will both look into that hypersalivation versus <laughs> anticholinergic thing because that we do go into this a little bit blind because we want our talk to be very like genuine and fresh. So sometimes we will have things that we might need to look into afterwards. Right. <laughs> yes. So let's say Clozarel doesn't work, or you can't give it because as is common with, there's a lot of comorbidities with seizures and psychosis. So it's not an option. You've tried everything else. Theoretically, you could escalate to ECT, which is electroshock therapy. The reason I'm saying theoretically is because I've never seen a patient that for typical psychosis, we used ECT for, Mm. um, but it's theoretically we could use it. So that's just something to note. But when people do get very psychotic, and this is not just limited to psychosis, they Mm. can develop something called catatonia, Mm. which is where it's almost like everything is slowed down. Like they have very delayed responses, almost to the point that they're mute. They're when, if you try to like move their limbs, normally people are flexible, but there would be like rigidity. So if someone, if you believe someone is potentially catatonic, you don't want to give antipsychotics because that'll make it worse. 
So if that's even on your differential, the first thing you should do is a benzodiazepine trial. Mm -hmm. Typically we use Ativan. You can give like um, like one or two milligrams, see if they improve at all. Ten minutes later, give another dose. If oh, that soon? Yeah, yeah. And really because with catatonia there's – a risk for malignant catatonia, which is where, you know, your vitals are all out of whack and it's actually, there's a risk of death. Keeping that in mind, you can't really give, like, it's a lot harder to give too much Ativan to this patient than like a normal patient where you do worry about giving too much of a benzodiazepine. So let's say the patient responds to the Ativan, they get a little bit better. Generally what happens, unfortunately, is they will get better with the Ativan, but as the time increases since their last dose, they'll start developing catatonia again. So most patients who have catatonia end up needing the ECT, the electroshock therapy, um, which is actually a beautiful thing. It is like yes. a, a miracle treatment. It yeah. is it is not what you see in movies where person's like strapped down and it's terrible and looks like they're being tortured. Yeah. It's actually like... People can go from like not talking, not eating to interacting with you normally after one treatment, although usually they require more. But we will eventually have a whole episode devoted to talking about ECT, but just want to put out there that it's good. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've we've had to use it um, a couple of times on patients with kind of an acquired infection, acquired essentially psychosis who um, have become catatonic. Now, I want to ask, you know, there's different types of symptoms in psychosis and schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is it common that somebody would present with catatonia as their first kind of symptom of psychosis? So... Sometimes by the time they make it to the hospital, it's the first symptom, but catatonia is believed to be what happens when, and it can come from depression too, when something has been untreated for a long time. So it shouldn't be their first presenting symptom, but for whatever reason, either like, it can can often be like cultural perhaps, or Mm. maybe they don't have like family or any close supports, but it's usually people that they were ill they were psychotic but they didn't get the treatment when they needed it Mm -hmm. earlier on and now it's progressed to catatonia and one thing i'm thinking about that i didn't mention earlier is i can't believe i didn't mention this i probably should have mentioned at the beginning but i'm mentioning it now psychosis is not always physiological you always need to think about if someone has substances in their system Mm. so the very first thing after when you're getting that beyond looking for a history of psychosis or malingering or whatever in someone's chart is is there any indication that this person is a substance user and it could be cocaine it could be alcohol of course there are certain things that are more likely to present in a way that could seem like psychosis um you know like Actually, in the emergency department a lot, you get a consult for psychosis, but the person's inebriated. They just have a really high blood alcohol level. They literally just need to sober up in the ED, and they're not going to seem psychotic anymore. Right. (laughs) 
this is, but this is what is so fascinating is kind of chicken or the egg thinking. Yes. Were they self-medicating? Yeah. And so, well, that's the thing. So that's why a mental status exam, what a psychiatrist does, it is not valid if someone is intoxicated. So if you go assess someone and they're intoxicated, your exam is not valid because that person is not at their baseline. So that's why it's very important for all these patients that you get like a urine drug screen. And you can see if they have drugs or alcohol in their system that are contributing. After you've been doing psychiatry for a while, you can like get a sense beyond what other physicians can get. Maybe by their appearance or little clues, little I mean, little clues, like obviously someone's, if their eyes are bloodshot, (laughs) you're much more likely to suspect, um, you know, that there's something contributing to this. But there's little things that I don't even know if I could name that Mm. clue you in on this. Kind of like gestalt, like just a general. Yeah. And the idea with like, so if alcohol is making them in quotes, psychotic. Well, alcohol doesn't really take that long to get out of your system. So the idea is keep the person in the emergency department until they've metabolized the alcohol, they've slept it off. And now if psychiatry has become involved, they can reassess the patient. If psychiatry isn't involved because the emergency physician sort of assumed this was from alcohol, they can reassess and be like, okay, you've sobered up, you know, you're not exhibiting any concerning symptoms, Mm -hmm. and now we can discharge you. Now, there are some substances like crack, meth, PCP, which, and obviously, you know, weed can also promote psychosis, shrooms. Those things are like they can, but you see them less in the emergency. So I'm thinking about like, what are the big things that I see in the emergency department? Crack is going to be like number one for uh, causing psychotic symptoms in someone. If someone used crack and became psychotic, it's not necessarily going to be something that they can metabolize just sitting in the ED. Like, the symptoms could last at least 24 hours. So often for those patients, you will end up admitting them and just sort of keeping them in a safe environment. You might potentially give some as-needed Haldol or things like that. You probably won't start them on a medication unless, you know you're at the time, the time window where if it was from crack, it should be gone. Mm. And now they're like still psychotic. So for those patients, you would wait like, you know, a day or two before. And obviously it varies from patient to patient on the history you have, but that's something else to consider. But most of the patients, if it did come from something like crack within like a day, they'll be fine and you can just charge them. Okay. What about long-term use of uh, marijuana? Has is has that ever? And again, you know, it's causation versus just correlation. Um, can marijuana use long-term cause um, a psychosis that you know is is permanent? Or again, going back to was that self-soothing, self-medicating, um, or is it just the population of people who use you know, marijuana long-term, um, you know, in their social situation, how, is there evidence that long-term use can cause psychosis? So marijuana can cause psychotic symptoms in people. So there's like two sort of options. The first is that someone smokes or ingests or whatever, 
a THC product and they become psychotic. But when it leaves their system, they go back to normal. Okay. Then there's other people who they are prone to developing schizophrenia. They're probably going to develop it at some point anyways. Mm. And now they have fully decompensated into psychosis and they have a full-blown psychotic episode. Um, Unfortunately, with psychosis, once again, there's a lack of insight. So the person, you know, they might totally deny that this was from drugs and they might continue what, you know, to go smoke weed or whatever. And that's something you commonly see and you just got to try to talk to them and hope that it gets through. Right. Or someone around them, if they have someone that could sort of keep them in check. But yeah, it's probably not like in a typical person smoking marijuana chronically is not going to cause psychosis but with the people with the genetic the genetic component it you know it can bring that out okay that that's you know that's interesting and again i have to you know say a disclaimer given the life and times of you know everything that's going on not saying that marijuana i feel one way or the other um i just and you also don't know we're not talking about pure regulated thc we mm-hmm. don't know if it was laced yeah. with anything so um and yeah that's that's all i'll say about yeah that. <laughs> yeah yeah so like just like any at like alcohol like if you have genes for alcoholism in your family you know you might want to refrain if there's you know and oftentimes people don't know this but if they have genes for psychosis in their family the legality aside those are the people who who should be refraining you know so it's just try to be conscious so actually just to piggyback off and i think this is a good segue if you have do you ever have conversations about family planning with a patient with a family history or a personal history of psychosis you know i haven't um but i'm also a pgy3 and i have only spent so many months on outpatient now which is probably where this would come up Mm. it's very difficult because a lot of especially you know, it's more concerning when it's the woman. A woman who has schizophrenia and is not stable will get pregnant. And there are situations where, you know, the baby will be taken away from them when it's born because they're so psychotic, there's no way that they can care for it. It's a really heartbreaking situation. I think, you know, unfortunately, these patients, they're, if they do have interaction with a psychiatrist I think this topic often doesn't come up and I think maybe when it does come up sometimes is when they've already had a baby and you know I just think America's America's so pro like autonomy of patients that they we often don't think about the autonomy of the unborn and I mean that in like the autonomy of someone to not be born we are so pro the autonomy of the individual that we don't really think about the person being brought into this world. And so I think that these conversations, like if I had a schizophrenic patient, I would really, I would be very hesitant to encourage them 
to have a child because number one, like the medications mm. that you that someone has to be on can right. cause really severe side effects, uh, birth defects. And then we know that if you have mental illness, a severe mental illness, the hormone changes that occur postpartum can make things significantly oh worse. And even if you were stable, you could have the baby and then not be stable. Right. So... And then it, in between that, the follow-up and, yes. you know, if they're barely making it to their, you know, appointments with a psychiatrist to get these medications, the prenatal care, if they go yes. off on some type of psych, psychotic, you know, they're just, they're MIA for months and they don't get prenatal care. Yeah. So I think these conversations probably don't generally have that much because a psychotic patient is not usually, like, if they get pregnant, it's generally not something that was planned Mm -hmm. and unfortunately i think a lot of them are uh, victims of sexual assault and and rape and that a lot of these children who who knows how they came into existence but i i haven't really seen a situation where there was someone with a chronic like schizophrenia diagnosis who was in a loving relationship and decided to have a baby with them the father figure is often unknown unfortunately and because of the state that these people are in you don't really know what happened to them and your mind goes into like the worst places of sure what happened yeah Yeah, it is really sad it is really sad and i think our country does really does not have good care for people with mental health issues but especially psychosis and schizophrenia and these disorders and this goes back to in the 1960s there was deinstitutionalization across america so people who either were cognitively disabled or severely schizophrenic or severely bipolar or whatever they had been like essentially in these state hospitals which were somewhat terrible places and there was a lot of abuse and a lot of bad things that that happened there Mm -hmm. but then there was this push just like okay we need to close them all so they close them all then these people are now homeless not getting any care and it's sort of like it took something bad and instead of making it better, it made it worse. And to this day, we have a huge lack of state hospitals or the care that we really need for these patients because there are so many patients who are, you know, even with our best medication regimen, even with our ACT team, it's not enough. They're going to disappear they're going to just come into the hospital over and over and over again, and they're never going to be able to have an okay life. And they would be serviced much better if they could have a place where they could live and sort of have freedom but also be taken care of, be given their meds, because they really can't care for themselves. And unfortunately, although we do have some state hospitals in America, they are they are there's way less than what we need and the waiting lists are really long to get into these places and only the super 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 sick people are getting in there so um if you are interested um in kind of a good 
example that kind of encapsulates what happened, uh, there is a documentary called uh, Cropsy um, on Netflix, and it actually talks about uh, Staten Island. Um, There's also another one. I think it was called the Willowbrook um, Institution. And the horrors that happened there, actually, Gerald... Geraldo Rivera actually went in when he was very young. He won a Peabody Award for the mm-hmm. documentary. Wow. And um, the just the the horrors, just what that these children were just sitting in their own feces and mm-hmm. rooms were just completely pitch black. And kind of what happened when they shut down that facility, um, I think it, this these documentaries, um, we'll, we'll uh, post them to the Instagram and Twitter. But I think if you're really interested to kind of see what that looked like and, and what that meant for a community like Staten Island in New York. Um, I think that that's a a good thing. I do recommend watching. Yeah. And that's like, I haven't seen it, but I need to. So I'm going to get on that too (laughs) when I want to be depressed about the state of things, which is something I quite frequently get myself into. (laughs) Yeah. And of course there's, uh, you know, this has to do with murder and, and, you know, disappearance. And I, um, you know, that's another avenue, but, um, definitely just to get a get a sense I would recommend so can you tell us what you know about like brain changes and people with psychosis and all that good neurological stuff (laughs) I sure can so there's you know a lot of evidence on the horizon that schizophrenia could be immune mediated Mm. meaning that um the brain receptors are kind of um getting exposed to these you know, immunologic antibodies that the body created against one thing and it's, it's irritating them and it's causing, uh, you know, psychosis and sometimes catatonia. And, um, you know, I can't wait to do this episode that we do encephalitis and, uh, we'll do the, you know, I'm so excited to do the brain on fire. Yes. (laughs) Um, cause that is an example of kind of an acute psychosis that was, neurologically, you know, mediated and and immune mediated. So we do have, we have some evidence. Um, The MRI they studied um, of the brain showed that there were changes. There were kind of asymmetries as compared to normal, healthy, non, um, non non-schizophrenic brains. And I, I think that, you know, one of them is that the ventricles, which are the kind of the reservoirs that hold our, our spine fluid are a little bit bigger. And um, there's been kind of a question as it, are they enlarged because of this, the medication mm-hmm. causing some shrinkage of the brain over time? Um, and if they are larger, that, you know, kind of corresponds to their, uh, you know, level of functioning um, and, and outcomes. So that being said, the brain... It is smaller overall volume, and these are uh, have been um, kind of corroborated in postmortem studies, and um, especially in the frontal lobe. And we'll talk about this as we go on through the episodes. The frontal lobe is kind of your, um, you know, your breaks. Mm-hmm. If you know you, there's something you shouldn't say, but you just, <laughs> you know, um, it, it's kind of our decision making kind of puts the lid on things that you know aren't appropriate, um, our social functioning. So there's there they notice that there's some volume loss, especially there, um, which which makes sense, yeah. I think. And then uh, it brings us to the basal ganglia, which um, again, you know, we talk about the how. The side effects of these medications causes Parkinsonism mm-hmm. and the dopamine. Um, and I think 
it may explain the catatonic stages of of psychosis because um, abnormalities, if you're familiar, the basal ganglia is kind of what you know controls, initiates, regulates movement. So you know a lack of movement, such as in catatonia, kind of makes sense. Um, and yeah, so again a lot of changes were a mm-hmm. little bit skewed because they were on these medications that aren't necessarily toxic to the brain, but they're chemicals and they they can cause changes. Mm-hmm. And then, this is an asymmetry, the left side of the brain was actually uh, smaller um, and in the temporal area, which is kind of our auditory processing center, which is fascinating because this could possibly correspond to auditory hallucinations um, and language processing issues. Um, so all of this is evidence um, that, you know, we, and maybe maybe some medications can now be looked at from a, you know, different standpoint, an anatomical neurotransmitter, there's a lot more um, that we can do uh, just knowing this. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, I think as psychiatrists, when we see people with like, you know, true schizophrenia, we, we know that there's like a deeper cause. It's just like, it's not really understood, but this isn't like a syndrome. This is something very, very serious and something that this individual doesn't really have any control over. And I think as time goes on, we'll understand what's behind that more and more. Yeah, I think that having evidence on a brain scan that shows that this, you know, unfortunately with stigma, people are a lot, you know, no offense, people are a lot more comfortable saying they have a neurologic yes. disorder versus a psychiatric, and yes. that's because of, of stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, all this will only benefit the field, and yeah. it points to our underlying kind of connection mm-hmm. that it's one brain. Mm-hmm. It's just one brain. You know, psychiatric and neurologic things are just, by separating them and, and thinking of them as separate entities and separate fields, isn't going to help either one yeah. of the fields. Yeah. And, you know, of of all psychiatric diagnoses, schizophrenia is the most stigmatized. Sure. And I think that's part of why I wanted to talk about, like, psychosis first, because of so much misunderstanding. And I do want to talk about my personal connection to psychosis. And I thought a lot about, like, should I share this story? Is this too much self-disclosure? Worrying about the person that I'm going to talk about and if it's okay. And then I was sort of was like, you know, the reality is I can't really talk about my patients because of HIPAA. You know, we right. talk about things very generally. And I'm sure they're so unique that it would be obvious yes. who you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> but we do have the ability to talk about either ourselves or people in our lives or guests who want to come on and talk. And so I want to share my perception of my sister's battle with psychosis or potentially schizophrenia. And I did speak to her ahead of time. She knows about this podcast. And I was like, do you mind if I share your story? And (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) to my sis, who I will not name, but 
yes, she did give permission. And the, I told her, you know, the idea is that I'm trying to help educate people and make people think about things in a different light. So my sister, my story sort of starts, it was uh, before, it was between my third and fourth years of medical school. I was studying hard for my boards. I was in that little like few week time period where you're doing the grind hard. Happy times. Yes, real good times. Totally in a great place. Um, And it was the day before my 25th birthday. And that day I hung out with my sister because I was like still going to yoga or something to, you know, try to try to maintain (laughs) normality in my life in this time of uh, chaos. So when I went to yoga with her, I just thought she seemed a little off. She like, like passed out sleeping in the yoga class, which, okay, if you go to yoga, you would know this is, yeah, (laughs) the whole time straight up in coffin pose. And I was like, this is a little weird. And then this, uh, I lived in Philly at the time and she lived in Philly as well. And we were going to take, I think the L back to our area of Philly. And I remember we were in the station and she started looking up and she was like the numbers, the numbers. And she was like having a full on meltdown. She was saying that the numbers were speaking to her and she was so agitated that we ended up like parting our separate ways because I couldn't even be around her at that point because she was like so upset about this and she was like screaming in public and I was just like, oh, I need to get away. Oh my goodness. And I remember thinking like something was off and I think it was either, it was maybe the, the night before that or maybe a few nights before that, she had sent me these long strings of text messages like apologizing for things she had done to me in my childhood. And it was just very like, it was, it was atypical behavior. And I, I couldn't help but pick up that something was a little off. And in my head, I sort of wondered if there was some sort of like, it was a thought that flittered across. Sure. If there was some sort of psychotic break going on because of what I was seeing. And obviously I was not like, I wasn't like I was a medical student and I was planning on going to psychiatry. So I had some knowledge of things, but it's a little bit different, I guess, when it's your sibling too. So that night I got a call from the police (gasps) and they said, we have your sister with us. She asked us to call you. She told us that some people poisoned her through her fingertips and she's, she's having us take her to the hospital And I was just like, oh, my God, I think she's having a psychotic break. And that's what I said to the police on the phone because this was just another thing. And I think they were relaying to me that she said that she had gotten assaulted by, like, 15 people or something. That just sounded sort of wild, to be honest. And I'd already seen all these other things, and now I was seeing this. So they, they were taking her, I think, to the local hospital by me. So I ended up calling my parents and I let my dad know like I think I think she's having a psychotic break and my parents told me like she had been acting sort of weird with them recently she had been saying she was like communicating with our dead grandfather who she never met by the way Mm. and she was um so just like some odd stuff and 
they told me that she had been at a festival and she had done a little bit of shrooms and they were wondering if that was contributing to her presentation Mm. and just that she had been sort of off with them too. But I think they both thought it was like from whatever happened, like whatever she did at the festival. So, you know, I think she ended up at the hospital. She was seeking medical treatment, but they didn't think anything was medically wrong with her. They, I think, I think they just ended up discharging her. It's my memory's very foggy, but I think what happened was my parents ended up going to Philly to try to track her down. And when they got there, and I think, I don't know if I was sleeping or what was going on. It was like my birthday and I was trying to stay for my boards, but I was very distraught. I was also in a relationship with someone who didn't, who like distanced me from my family. So that complicated this whole situation. Sure. Um, but I know that my mom was in, parents were in contact with me and they were like, she's, she's erratically like running through the streets. It's raining and she's covered in mud and she's rolling around in the ground on the park. Um, and like, her boyfriend was trying to track her down at the time. It was, like, very complicated. So the police or the hospital just let her go? Yeah, which is it's sort of typical, you know? Yeah. Like, um, she was only there for medical treatment. They didn't think she needed medical treatment. She wasn't being like, I'm suicidal or I'm homicidal or I'm seeing or hearing things. So oftentimes, even though the symptoms of a mental illness are right in front of you, if the person does not complain of the certain keywords, Mm. they will not get evaluation. So my, at some point she was like in the house and she, she's back in her house and she was unplugging all the light bulbs. And she said that the FBI was monitoring her and had stuck like stuff to record her in there. And she was going on and on about this child sex ring she had discovered in her neighborhood. And she felt that uh, people were now out to get her because she discovered this child sex ring. She also was stating that she could look at someone and tell if they were good or evil. So, and Mm. from a psych perspective, we would call that grandiose delusions. Um, So a lot of, a lot of different stuff going on either way. Even though I wasn't there, like, I I remember that day I was just, like, distraught. I was crying. I was sobbing. Because to me, I, some part of me in that moment knew I had lost my sister forever. And I knew what happens when people develop schizophrenia. And I was accepting it, like, that day. And I remember I wanted my parents to take her to the hospital to get help. So I encouraged them in Philly to do a 302, which requires the police, like a family member of someone can do a 302, which requires the police to take them to the closest psych hospital for evaluation. And I actually, someone who went to our medical school was a resident at the local hospital. I remember texting like, my sister's coming in. She's definitely psychotic. Like, you know, like, I know, like, obviously now you're, you can't evaluate her because we're having this discussion, but like, please make sure, she, you know, getting overly involved yeah. or whatever, but who wouldn't do that? Sure. Um, and I were, and the thing about my sister is that when she was like in high school, she was very intelligent. She was a national merit scholar. Mm. 
She did sort of decompensate, though, from early on. Like, she never completed college. Hmm. She never really, like, for a little while had, like, sort of real jobs and then would just do, like, quote, freelance stuff. Hmm. Um, So some of the things that you would look for were there. But the reality is this is someone who at baseline was very high functioning. So when she did end up getting 302'd and she got evaluated – she said all the right things to just get discharged. And I think it was like a PGY2 psych resident evaluated her. And they talked to my parents and they said, oh, we think she has paranoid personality disorder. Like, we understand that, you know, your daughter is upset, but we don't think that this is psychosis. You know, medical students often get like overly upset and overly involved in things. Which, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so so anyways, she got discharged, but my parents were able to like take her to their house and sort of watch her because South Jersey suburbs are a lot safer than someone running around the streets of North Philly. Sure. And and she's I mean, she's lucky yes. that she had that option and many people don't. Yeah. And so she, I remember my siblings who lived at home telling me that like in the middle of the night she was going out and she was following some sort of man or something, but it wasn't like a real man. It was like a man that wasn't there and stuff. So she was still having behaviors. Um, she found out that I encouraged my parents to 302 her. And I think she didn't talk to me for like six months. So she's mad at me. So she did improve a little, like, this, she was, like, very, you know, upset and not in a good space then, but there was a time period where she returned to, like, some level of functioning, Mm -hmm. but in the year that followed, she started to lose all of her friends, which is another thing that happens when people have psychotic disorders. They're often not able to maintain relationships in their life. Um, And I think it was because people were questioning her stories, the things she was saying, like, for example, saying she was uncovering child sex rings or whatever. It's not conducive for a functional friendship. Yes, Yeah. yeah. And she did keep a few supports. Oh, good. Um, So then what ended up happening is probably, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but like Wi-Fi stuff gets updated every so often. And like right now, most big cities are using 5G and they've been installing 5G. And my sister believes that she's incredibly sensitive to 5g so when they started installing the 5g in in philly she was saying i'm really really ill and i'm i'm getting sick and at that point she ended up this is someone who was wildly independent who moved out of my parents house when they were 18 years old and was always on their own like pretty self-sufficient person very independent and ended up moving in with my parents to get away from the 5G. She also believed she was really sensitive to Wi-Fi. So when she was at my parents' house, she wanted to shut off the Wi-Fi. And um, she, like, brought all her plants with her. And she had her little, like, crystal area and some tinctures she was giving herself that she felt was helping her. There was a lot of 
fights with like my two younger sisters live there and clearly two girls who are uh, one is in their 20s and one is in their teens are not going to be happy when someone's shutting off the wi-fi in an area that doesn't have reception (laughs) so there was a lot of like argumentation going on and it was incredibly stressful for my parents who felt like you know, this is my child that needs me the most. Yeah. But now I'm alienating my other children as a result. Sure. And and I'm sure that your other two sisters, you know, from what you've told me about them, I'm sure that at some level they tried to, you know, respect her, yeah. her, you know, respect her, not wishes, but just, you know, I her requests yeah. to maybe yeah. turn this off. But then it gets to a point where yes. it's like, okay, yes. everybody would have a breaking yes. point. Yes, yes. And it's it's different when you're someone's sibling versus someone's parent. There's a different role you take on in their life. So um, it was interesting. I was on like, you know, at this by this time in this story, I was a PGY2 psych resident. So this is in the past year, actually maybe a little over a year ago and I was on night float with one of my co-residents and we were watching Afflicted and he knew about what was going on with my sister and we got to the episode of like the woman who believes that electromagnetic energy is making her sick episode for those who are interested I think you just have to watch the first one so we and we were like oh my god like that's my sister and the woman in the episode she moves to this area of West Virginia where there's Mm -hmm. like no like power electricity or things it's I don't like even a sweet know. spot yes. it's just for the furthest enough away from the nearest yes and yeah. it's it's because there's some sort of scientific research that they do in the area that requires there to be none of that right but we started thinking because at this point I didn't think that medication was the appropriate choice for my sister I didn't think that forcing her to go to a hospital would help her and I didn't think that antipsychotics might even help her because I felt that she had a lot of more delusions than like seeing or hearing things that aren't there and something to make note of is that antipsychotics don't work as well on delusions actually sometimes they don't impact delusions at all Hmm. they work very well with acute psychosis like responding to internal stimuli which is what we say when you can visualize that someone's interacting with things that aren't there um so in my mind i thought that uh hospitalization would be very traumatic and it might not help her and you know who am i to say that she really doesn't have some sensitivity to like 5g or whatever it it comes up when you google it yeah it's a it's a pretty (laughs) widespread belief whether it's actually a a thing or not i you know it doesn't really matter so either way she's experiencing something yes she's experiencing something and whether the root of that is medical or psychiatric is tbd it could be both it could be one it could be Mm -hmm. the other um but clearly she was experiencing distressing psychiatric symptoms as a result of this all and so when I was speaking to my co-resident, I was like, I, I ended up talking to my parents and I was like, where is there in the country that we could support her to get to right. where she doesn't have to be around this stuff that she believes is attacking her and making her ill? It's Green Bank, West Virginia. Yes. So my sister actually had friends in an area of North Carolina and some sort of community there okay. where they like farm and 
don't really have electricity or things like, like I think they do have some, but like, yeah, but it's like very minimal. They definitely, I uh, don't think they have any Wi-Fi there or things like that. Definitely no 5G. <laughs> so it took, it did take some convincing. My sister was definitely more comfortable with my parents. During this time period, she got very hyper-religious and she would like, which was also a bit different for her. And she was reading her Bible a bunch and praying a bunch. And occasionally my dad said he witnessed her doing things like speaking to sticks or things that sort of seemed like, to be honest, what you would expect to see a psychotic person doing. Um, And so, but I told, I always communicated to my parents that I thought the best thing would be to support her to get her to one of these areas. Yeah. So, my parents had a van and they ended up giving it to my sister. My dad took out like incredibly high, like a million dollar policy so that whatever she did in this vehicle, he couldn't like, you know, get sued for whatever and helped her pack up. And with a lot of convincing, eventually were able to set her on her way to North Carolina and, um, at this time, I think she was mad at me about something again, so we weren't speaking. <laughs> but, you know, I decided that I'm not on this planet to argue with my sister about her psychiatric state. I'm here to help her in whatever way I can and have her in my life however I can. And, you know, because not having her in my life is very sad. Like, even if she's not doing well I'd rather have her in my life than not have her in my life so uh she when she went to this community she ended up having some like interpersonal issues with other people and she told me that the people there believe that she's mentally ill and like kicked her out but she's living with someone else and she was telling about all these things she's doing for her health um and she believes that she's in a much better state and I would say when I talk to her now you know, she still says some things that are sometimes a bit interesting, but, you know, I don't automatically write off everything she says. I try to look into it myself, mm. give her the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Sometimes there's like a thin line between, in my mind, psychosis and like genius. Yes. And sometimes someone can have a bit of both. Yes. And, and that's how I view it. But she... She is living with this person. She's doing the things she thinks she needs to do for her health. And she thinks that she's doing significantly better. And I do try to talk to her a few times a week now. And when we discussed, you know, me talking about her, she was like, well, you know, I think this is medical. And I I want you to share that. And I was like, you know, I will share that you think it's medical. And going back to what you said, Allie, there very well may be like an immunological component to these things. And I think there's really a lot left to discover. And we don't really know often the cause of someone's psychosis. But we do understand that there is something wrong. There is something distressing. And it's our job to help that person as much as we can whether it be through medications, whether it be through finding an environment that doesn't contain what they're paranoid about. And I don't 
exactly know what made my sister ill. There certainly could be a component of maybe she really is sensitive to like electromagnetic energy or 5G or whatever. And all I know is that, you know, I want her to be in a situation where she's as healthy and happy as she can be. Yeah. And that actually brings me to, um, my, my question about it is, um, is she happy right now? You know, I don't, she's not exactly happy. Like when she talks to me, she usually is upset or concerned over something, but it's not like the level that it was. She does think she's getting better. Like when I last saw her, you know, she's like five, six and she was like 110 pounds, which is pretty thin. And I think she told me she's gained like 30 pounds since then. So it's some of those more objective things that make me feel like she's in a better place. I think, you know, you, no one who has something like this is ever going to be like functioning at the level that you would expect from someone else, but they can still, they're, they can still like not be completely distressed all of the time. Right. So I guess to what I was going with that is, is, um, is psychosis egocentonic or egodystonic? And I, I think we're going to be using those phrases a lot. So maybe we define them first and then go. <laughs> Do you want to define them since you brought it up? Yeah. So <laughs> what is your take on it? My take is um, egocentonic means that the person has a disorder some of some type, but it, it doesn't bother them. It may bother other people more than it bothers them. You know, they it's almost like just part of them, part of their personality. And mm-hmm. egodystonic is when something is very distressing, it causes more anxiety. Um, and so it kind of goes, it, it kind of clashes with their, you know, with their well, with their... Yeah. The world. I think it's hard to label because like ego syntonic, I think of like maybe personality disorders where right. and not it's not like all personality disorders are their way, but there are some personality disorders that people have where yes, it's impacting everyone around them, but it isn't impacting them. Right. And then ego dystonic, I think of like, you know, anxiety, depression, the person is clearly aware that they're, you know, not doing well and they aren't happy. I think it's hard to label psychosis because of the lack of insight right and I think it's just you know for the I like I said there are some exceptions where someone is happily deluded they think that you know this famous person that they see on tv they think they're in like a sexual romantic relationship with them and that is a delusion that brings them like pleasure and joy and they're happy and they're confiding to you about this and like and they're excited about it but the vast majority of people it's more paranoid and it's not bringing them happiness i see so a little bit of both depending on yes. where we are all right well thank you for this, this consult, consult <laughs> on psychosis and our next episode will be on Allie. do you want to tell us what our next topic is yeah these words might not mean anything to you now but i will be talking about misophonia and synesthesias so definitely listen in and learn something about yourself you may not have realized <laughs> okay well thank you